Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 335, Churchill Wants War. Last time, we left off on June 14, 1940, just days after Italy's coming into the war, and sending eight air raids on that day to let the Maltese and the British forces with them know that the island would be added to the new Roman Empire. This was Il Duce making come true his famous fifth map, put up on a massive wall in 1934 along the Via del Fori Imperiale, or the avenue that bisects the ancient imperial forum of the Roman emperors, that showed what countries his new empire would consist of. Also on the fifth map was Albania, Croatia, the Balkans, France's Corsica and Nice, Greece, and most of eastern Africa. Libya was subdued in 1934, Ethiopia in 1936, and Albania in 1939. Now, it was Malta's turn. Though it did not have the honor of being listed on the map per se, perhaps it was just assumed. Back to the largest bombing attack on Malta thus far. Those peoples whose homes or apartments had been destroyed now only owned the clothes on their back, the ones that were still alive. As mentioned, thousands of people had been leaving the coastline since the first air raid, and one local, outsmarting everyone else, I assume, he sat in the middle of a bomb crater. As he must have deduced, bombs never land in the same place twice. But such was the Maltese opinion of the Italians, many returned to the coast a few weeks later, taking up residence as best they could. Future planes would be met by locals with raised fists or other hand gestures. As mentioned last time, Governor and Commander-in-Chief Lieutenant General William Dobby, now that war was declared, gathered up the pro-Italian Maltese, the biggest fish being Chief Justice Sir Arturo Masieca. Held on the island for a while, these people were soon moved to East Africa, and because of this move, they would happily miss the next 2,990 bombing raids. And though the people would return to the coastline in time, the island suddenly had tens of thousands of homeless refugees. As such, each city took in a portion of these people. Families took in another family. People with land opened up their property to squatters. 
And of course, the center of the island's life, the church, did all it could to feed, clothe, and shelter the now destitute. Governor Dobby also made it known that taking care of the people would be his top priority, as this war was expected to go on and get worse. Thus, the politicians, local police, and churches were organized to make sure that no one was missed. The results were admirable and inspiring. Still, built-up supplies were burned through quickly, as was a fund set aside years ago for just such an emergency. Next, air raid shelters had to be expanded in terms of additional structures and expanding those that could be. Fortunately, limestone, on which Malta sits, was ubiquitous. The substance is relatively easy cut out of the ground, but once it is exposed to the sea air, it hardens, thus the perfect building material. Water and food were quickly organized and rationed to be available when people went into shelters. But it has to be said, though there was a fine charged for those who did not get into the shelter during a raid, there were those who happily paid so they could stay outside and watch, or rather hope, to see enemy planes being shot out of the sky. This expansion of the shelters went alongside many of the locals volunteering for various defense roles. Thus was created the Home Defense Force and a special constabulary, totaling about 5,000 people, and an enlargement of the King's Own Malta Regiment, of which two companies were created from former Boy Scouts. As for the two former groups, many brought with them their hunting rifles from home. The Home Guard even took over the anti-parachute duties, i.e. shooting at enemy troops as they floated down with their rifles, if it came to that. Next, it was determined that more time was needed in terms of an air raid warning. Technology could only do so much, and even then, it was meaningless without sharing that information quickly with all those concerned, the islanders, the military units, including the pilots. But in mid-1940, the various parts of the warning system were far from perfect. And despite all of this, the people of Malta, as well as the governor, strove to return to some kind of normalcy. This war was going to go on for some time, so it was deemed desirable to maintain some sort of life. Rationing and bans were imposed, but soon lifted, or lifted as much as was deemed safe. As for the children, their schooling would be in the shelters, as most, if not all of the schools, were now refugee centers. Overall, the response of British authorities, alongside local measures, worked. Between June 11th and the end of 1940, there were 210 air raids in all. Yet there were few military casualties and no more than 100 civilian deaths during that time. This was mostly due to the increased deep underground shelters, but most importantly, a sense that all had to pull together to maximize the safety of all. And then there was the relatively poor accuracy of the Italian pilots, but in time, more accurate crews of a different nationality would be visiting Malta. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. After the first few days of bombing, the Maltese got a break. Between the weather and Mussolini's drifting focus, the islanders went from feeling relief to scorn. This latter attitude came from the Maltese picking up on Italian radio of a non-existent railway station on Malta having been successfully destroyed, and the HMS St. Angelo, which did not exist, being sunk in the Valletta Harbor. Still, the people ran to the shelters or slit trenches when the sirens erupted. It was the prudent thing to do. Back in Rome, Il Duce narrowed his focus into helping finish off France, that and softening up French-controlled Tunisia, its jutting tip only some 70 miles or 112 kilometers from Sicily. It was to be added to the Roman Empire. Further, the great man firmly believed that Britain would now, rightfully, sue for peace, what with France being out of the war, which was news to Admiral Cunningham. Either way, Malta received a reprieve. With war now declared, Admiral Cunningham in Alexandria took his Mediterranean fleet for a sweep of the central Mediterranean. In tow were two battleships, five cruisers, one aircraft carrier, and several destroyers. Overall, Cunningham was hoping to achieve several objectives simultaneously. To fly the British flag catch any Italian ships making for Tunisia or any other part of North Africa, but most of all, to flush out any Italian aircraft or submarines, then destroy them. For these were his greatest fears. But as he told the first sea lord, Admiral Sir Dudley Pound, he never saw an enemy plane during that first trip. As for the enemy subs, that was a different story. On June 12th, When near Crete, an Italian sub sent a torpedo into the cruiser Calypso. Going down around midnight, the Calypso lost 39 sailors. The rest were saved and taken to Alexandria. But the sinking wasn't the only thing to go against Cunningham and company. When the Mediterranean fleet was out, the Italians wisely laid mines outside Alexandria. Fortunately for the British, this was picked up, and the fleet managed to slip around the mines, refuel, and head back out. Another item to add to Cunningham's list of number one priorities was minesweepers. 
But the Admiral was not done harassing the enemy. Next, Cunningham headed for the Egyptian border and bombarded Bardia, just inside Cyrenaica, already under the control of the Italians. Again, the British were looking for subs, but found none this go-around. Yet by the end of the month, the Mediterranean would be less six Italian subs, thanks to Cunningham's anti-sub policy. As there were 51 of them currently in and around Italy, Mussolini was not too concerned about this. Meanwhile, also by the end of the month, the British would be down to only seven subs. This concerned Cunningham. But the Admiral wasn't just thinking of the here and now and the future in general, but also of the next phase of the war over the Mediterranean. It's true that the Italians had not bothered to change their communication ciphers since at least 1937, when the British cracked them, but they would. It was only a matter of when. And when that happened, the British fleet in the Mediterranean would be blind. That, combined with being outnumbered and outgunned, was unacceptable. Hence, Cunningham hoped to compensate by getting more ships and planes into his area and communication equipment. Thus, he asked for more flying boats from Gibraltar. And while it was true that Malta was being bombed less, it was still being bombed, and the Admiral still had his wife and two nieces on that island. Random deaths were still very much possible. Defending the skies over Malta, well, trying to, at any rate, the pilots and their sea gladiators stayed ready, ready to take to the skies in a moment's notice. Well, again, it actually took more than a moment. And that was the problem. By the time the gladiators were at attack height, the enemy was mostly gone. So they split into four groups of three, sitting in their cockpits, waiting for the signal to take off. But the hot sun did more damage to the men than the Italians currently were. Still, on one day early in the war, Harry Kirk, an RAF corporal, seeing a three-plane formation flying together, was reminded of the three silver stars on his mother's brooch, and each of them had a name, Faith, Hope, and Charity. This name would stick to the planes in general, even when it was later decided to only have two planes actively waiting instead of three to give the pilots more downtime. Not that the overall situation had changed. The gladiators would take off and rarely catch up to the enemy, now on their way home. One way to look at being offered more obsolete weapons was, well, at least we have more of them, and that's how Malta Fighter Flight decided to view being given two more gladiators by the Navy. But soon, due to landing accidents, there were small stone walls all over the island. Those two additions were gone, being morphed into one Frankenized fighter with patchwork scars to show for it. But then, Governor Dobby's harassment of the war office paid off as Malta received eight hurricane fighters, and times being what they were, the ferry pool pilots, or air transport auxiliary pilots, who flew them in from Gibraltar, were then informed that they were the latest crewmen of Malta fighter flight. This brought a moan or groan from the young men, as some had expected to return home, others to Alexandria, and one who had to inform Air Commodore Maynard that he had training, but only as a bombardier. 
Either way, it was an example of needs must, which was true for the Allies at this time in all theaters. As for the original crew of the Malta fighter flight, on June 22nd, George Burgess was in the air on patrol when a single Italian plane flew over, probably taking photos. Because of the ever-improving system of having the pilots work in shifts, Burgess actually found himself a few thousand feet above the enemy plane when it was spotted. Not looking a gift horse in the mouth, he nosed his gladiator down and closed in. Getting at the proper distance, he had learned what that was from recent experience. When he opened up, the enemy plane's port side engine simply dropped away. Yes, the Italian pilot was doomed, but even better, this happened while being over the capital, Valletta, and points north of it. George knew this was more luck than anything else, as did all of those involved with or in the RAF. But to the Maltese, it was the valiant British keeping their word, defending the island. Good PR never hurt. Yet, for every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. When the Italian bombers returned the next day, June 23rd, they were escorted by fighters. Machi 200s, the Italian version of the hurricane. Within seconds upon George engaging the bombers, he himself was engaged by the fighters. Bullets were now whizzing past him. The gladiator was obviously much slower than the Machi, but it had a smaller turning circle, so George put his plane on its side and turned hard. At this point, the Italian pilot had done his job. The gladiator was no longer harassing the bomber. But he did not stop there. The Machi turned as well, but what he did not have in an equal turn radius, he made up for with speed, actually passing George while he was still in his turn. George was getting nervous upon seeing this. But then he quickly realized, as the more modern fighter whizzed past, it was in his kill zone, at least for a few seconds. Hence George went after the bomber again. Again, this brought the fighter back up behind him, which is when George turned. The same scenario played itself out, but now ended with George taking a few seconds burst at the fighter. Around the fifth time, it was hard for George to tell if any of the other shots had scored a hit. The fighter caught fire and plunged down into the sea. What should have been a mission of keeping the bomber safe turned out to be an example of play the board, not the player. The local victory was nice, but only the day before, France had signed an armistice with Nazi Germany. And just like that, the Mediterranean coastline was two-thirds in Axis hands. All the Allies still had in their possession, as far as ports, were in Malta, Palestine, Gibraltar, and Egypt. But even before the French signed the armistice, First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Dudley Pound's focus zeroed in on the French fleet. As he said to Cunningham, unless the French could be persuaded to hand over their fleet to the British, London's ability to maintain control over the western exit of the Med was seriously compromised. It might be best to move the Mediterranean fleet to Gibraltar, for what good did it do to have a British fleet bottled up in the Mediterranean, when the two other higher priorities were the waters around the home island and the country's Atlantic convoy routes. Worse 
What if Spain, under Franco, joined the Axis? Too terrible to even contemplate. But that was Pound's job, and Cunningham's. To this, Cunningham mostly agreed with his superior, but again, he had to stress the importance of Malta. If the fleet left the Mediterranean, Malta would fall, as would, in time, Egypt, Cyprus, and Palestine. But then Cunningham added on to his response, True, this war with Italy is only a few weeks old, but Rome has already shown itself none too keen to come out and fight. That timidity could be used against her. Also, if London sent supplies to the western edge of the Mediterranean, Cunningham felt confident that he could get them safely to their destinations. But Admiral Cunningham should not have worried as much as he did. First, Churchill, in late May, as we have seen, had browbeat Lord Halifax in that Malta would be saved, if at all possible. Next, after the miracle of Dunkirk, that, coupled with Churchill's defiant speeches to the country, had the people firmly behind him. And as Churchill was the first Sea Lord's boss, Cunningham's delaying tactics saw the Mediterranean fleet stay right where it was. If there had been any doubt, the Maltese were given clarity when Churchill said before the House of Commons, during his Their Finest Hour speech, We shall defend our island home, and with the British Empire around us, shall fight on unconquerable until the curse of Hitler is lifted from the brows of men. Side note, since the end of the war, a debate has raged between some that Cunningham's fleet should have been moved out of the Mediterranean, that those territories could have been reclaimed later. But, honestly, it's hard to see a victorious London after losing Egypt, the Middle East, and the Suez Canal, where the Japanese would have been able to hook up with the Italian and German forces. Not that it mattered, because not only did Churchill have no intention of giving up the Mediterranean without a fight, he actually wanted to go over to the offensive and use Malta as a staging base, which is exactly what Cuttingham was thinking. To wit, Churchill directed his chiefs of staff to ready reinforcements and supplies for Malta, while Cunningham was left to figure out how they could safely travel the last leg of their trip. Cunningham got to work. First, if Malta was to be used as a staging base to launch attacks against the Axis in all directions, it was desirous to remove as many British non-combatants and transfer them to Alexandria. Of course, that included the Admiral's wife and two nieces. But it also meant it was best to move some of the Navy's provisions from there as well, should the island fall, despite their best attempts. Thus, on July 7th, the convoys from Alexandria to Malta got underway, protected by parts of the eastern Mediterranean fleet. The next morning, July 8th, at 8 a.m., Cunningham was radioed that one of his subs had spotted the Italian fleet located about 200 miles east of Malta, heading south. The Admiral guessed that the enemy warships were shielding their own convoy. This put them almost due north of Benghazi. The Admiral, on board the battleship Warspite, ordered that planes from Malta keep an eye on the enemy convoy, should they change course. 
Meanwhile, his Mediterranean fleet moved out to engage. To have planes from Malta keep the convoy in view was a solid move. So solid, in fact, that's what the Italians were currently doing to Cunningham, even though he did not know it at first. When the Italians realized that the British fleet was moving to engage, Italian bombers were sent out to make sure Cunningham and company never reached the rendezvous. For the rest of that day, July 8th, enemy bombers harassed the British fleet. Harassed being the operative word, as no ships were sunk and only one bomb scored a hit. It could have been worse, but the bomber pilots were staying at least 12,000 feet up in the air. They were safe, relatively speaking, but inaccurate. It was one of the flying boats that took off from Malta, but had originated from Gibraltar, that reported in the Italian fleet had turned back north. Cunningham altered course, not to engage, but to come in between the ships and their destination, if at all possible. The next morning, July 9th, the war spite and her escorts were 90 miles, or 144 kilometers, west of the Italian fleet. Cunningham kept his course true. At 3 p.m., the lead British vessel was finally within range. Right away, both sides started exchanging shells, though still 13 miles away. The Italians fired off a few shells before laying smoke and turning in a complete circle. Then their guns went silent. As the Italian ships were moving away, this left the two British battleships, Warspite and Malaya, to keep firing at the two Italian battleships as they still had the range. This cat and mouse, within and then through smoke, continued. But at exactly 4 p.m., one of the Warspite's shells hit the enemy battleship right at the base of its funnel. Soon, great plumes of smoke poured forth. Meanwhile, the Italian Admiral Riccardi had had enough. Ordering more smoke, he ordered all with him to dash to the north, to make for the bottom of the Italian boot. Getting a report of this latest move by the Italians from a spotter plane above the engagement, Cunningham moved in for the kill. He ordered his faster destroyers and cruisers to go on ahead and continue the engagement, but first he wanted them to go around the smoke, not through. The last thing he needed was to lose one of his fewer vessels by falling for one of the oldest tricks in the book. But it was at this moment that the Italian Air Force arrived on the scene, at least 100 planes. And with such numbers, they grouped themselves over the various British vessels and began bombing. However, again, from a height that guaranteed safety more than accuracy. Still, in this game of numbers, only one bomb had to strike true. Cunningham's war spite was singled out for five intense attacks from above. All that could be done was to alter course and pray. And each time the Admiral tried to look out to see how his other ships were doing, his view was blocked by huge fountains of water created by the latest near-miss and explosion. Between trying to keep up with the Italian ships, but simultaneously trying to avoid Italian bombs from above, time must have seemed to be suspended. Not until evening did the British realize they were only 25 miles 
or 40 kilometers from the Italian coast. The good news was that none of his ships had been lost to the bombers. The bad news was that soon, if Cunningham did not order an about-face, his ships, fortunate so far, would be in range of land-based guns. The admiral, who had honestly loved every minute of this Battle of Calabria, reined himself in and ordered a course change to Malta. As it had been a few days since first heading out, Cunningham was told that the convoy had reached Malta, had loaded aboard all the supplies and people it was supposed to, in record time, and was now, in fact, on its way back to Alexandria. Thus, Cunningham compensated with a new heading himself. But the next morning, he was set upon again by enemy bombers, this time out from Libya. No less than 24 bombs barely missed the war spy. Again, the luck of the bold held out. Soon, the admiral was back in Alexandria and looking at his wife and two nieces. In all, the British Royal Navy had bested the Italian Navy. However, the Italian Air Force had made the Mediterranean fleet's life hell. Its power, manifested by its numbers, spoke of the future pounding that Malta would take. Back to Cunningham, he realized that his number one problem was the threat from above. Hence, what he needed was a carrier, one that was heavily armored, for that armor would be tested if it spent any time in the Mediterranean. But if London could spare one, perhaps cities, ports, and airfields on the Italian mainland could be attacked, which may take some of the pressure off Malta. It was worth a shot. Which is exactly what Churchill was thinking. Again, both men were of an offensive spirit. When the latest action report was reported to the Prime Minister, he sent a note to General Ismay, Secretary of the Imperial Defense, and Churchill's Chief of Staff, saying, The contacts we have had with the Italians encourage the development of a more aggressive campaign against the Italian homeland by bombardment from both air and sea. It also seems desirable that the fleet should be able to use Malta more freely. A plan should be prepared to reinforce the air defenses of Malta in a stronger manner, with AA guns of various types and with airplanes. Let a plan for the speediest anti-aircraft reinforcements of Malta be prepared forthwith. And perhaps thinking of his limited resources or of having a different priority, Admiral Sir Dudley Pound replied with basically, is this wise? Maybe we should be giving the defending the entire Mediterranean area a rethink. To which Churchill replied, I do not understand what is meant by reviewing the whole Mediterranean situation. I hope there will be no return to that project. The Prime Minister continued, he wanted AA guns and several squadrons sent to Malta ASAP. We must once again make Malta a fleet base for special operations. Illustrious, with her armored deck, would seem to be better placed in the Mediterranean. Postscript. Going back to Mussolini's five maps, the first map marked the birth of Rome in 760 BCE. The second map showed a larger Rome after the Punic Wars in 146 BCE. 
The third map showed the enlarged empire of 14 CE under the emperor Augustus. The fourth map increased Rome to the furthest extent of the empire under the emperor Trajan in the 3rd century. As for the auxiliary pilots, in all 166 women of the ATA, or Air Transport Auxiliary, would help with the British, but they were not given equal pay until 1943.